Today's scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 14, uh, starting in verse 43. Betrayal and arrest of Jesus. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs, from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as, a, as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. A young man flees. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we come before you this morning asking that our connection with you would be more than just in our mind, that it would be more than just a feeling, but that all those things would be connected together, that it would penetrate our souls, that we would walk with you in intimacy and closeness. So would you speak to us uh, through your word this morning? Would you speak to your people here, your children, through our fellowship, through our prayer, through our sacraments of communion. We desire to feel you in a more tangible way. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a purpose to our study of Mark and specifically just looking at Mark chapter 14 a little bit more slowly as uh, Advent season is approaching. uh, We're purposely kind of slowing down on uh, chapter 14 to do this kind of purposefully so that there's more meaning, uh, more understanding as we head into our Advent season. Um, I I take my kids to school and uh, they're at two different campuses, but I drive through Temescal when I'm taking them to school. And uh, the day after Halloween, or all the Christmas decor was up on Telegraph (laughs) Avenue, it's like, they're efficient. Like I didn't see that the day before and it's like up. I don't know when they did that, but it's, it's incredible. Um, so I, I want us to kind of slow down from this familiarity of this gospel story. Um, for those of us who are familiar with this, I want us to kind of slow down as we approach this Christmas season that we're going to start next month. And hopefully these, these scriptures uh, toward the end of Mark, toward the end of Jesus' life, and then as we look next month into the Advent season, pointing to the birth of Jesus, that kind of those bookends are just more meaningful so that they can be more transformative to us, and so hopefully that works, but we'll see. Now, for some of us, this is uh, not a new story. 
But for some of you, this might be. This might be something that you're just not all that familiar with, and, and you're in a great place to gain some better understanding as we kind of read this together, and, and you can process through this by uh, going to your home group and, and talking about these things. So some of the background questions, just to run through your mind as, as we look at this, you know, why was this story written? Why did Mark write it in this way? What was Mark's intention? And something we can't do is just to look at this passage as an isolated passage. We have to look at it in a greater context. There were a lot of things that happened before this section of scriptures. There are going to be a lot of things that happen after this section of scripture. So we just need to keep that sort of stuff in mind. And so when we're looking at people in characters in this story, uh, one of the main characters in this story is Judas. And so when we look at Judas, what did he do? He went off and he colluded with these religious leaders to get Jesus arrested. And to keep in mind that Judas was one of Jesus's closest friends, one of his best friends who was with him every day for three years. That this great friend of his betrayed Jesus, that he followed Jesus for three years. He listened to all these teachings. He understands who Jesus is all about and who he is. And so yet he goes and his role is to identify Jesus in the night because he knew where Jesus would be. John gives us this background in John chapter 18, verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. A little bit more background on Judas. Judas was the treasurer for, for this group, and, and he was stealing from the group's treasury. He was upset that the woman who broke that alabaster flask of nard did not give money rather than uh, breaking this really expensive nard, which was worth about a year's worth of wages. And, and he, he led this mob of people who had with them swords and clubs and torches to Jesus. Let's look at our story, verse 43. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. Now why, why is this group so violent, you know, they're there with swords and clubs, and they're approaching Jesus, this really, really gentle person who has no history of violence. Why is it like that? And there's something behind this, whether they are fearful or they wanted to just go with their strength in numbers <laughs> um, by force, you know, just to intimidate or they, they, maybe they felt safer. We, we just don't know. We're not given that background. But it just seems really, really odd that they'd come out with soldiers and weapons when, when Jesus healed so many people. He didn't kill anyone. He, didn't, he never used this sword or a club against people. But, but they didn't, I guess, understand what Jesus was really all about. And perhaps... They did know that Jesus was quite powerful because they did have Judas there, and maybe Judas was filling them in on just how powerful Jesus is. Like maybe he was like, "You guys, um, he he calmed this crazy storm at the Sea of Galilee, and he he had this guy that was full of demons, and he casted him out and he cast him into pigs, and and he did all this this stuff. So who knows what he can do to us? So we we got to go out in force." 
But Judas was there to witness who Jesus was all along, that Jesus never abused his power. And actually, Jesus said these really meek things like this. Matthew chapter 11, starting verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But for some reason, they felt this need to come out in force, even though it was really unnecessary. Or was it? Because in John chapter 18, verse 6, when Jesus said to him, them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. <clears throat> so maybe their fear was real. Maybe they knew his power was real because Judas surely knew his power was real. And it's pretty gutsy for them to arrest Jesus because that power of Jesus's is no secret. Now let's stick with John's account of this story for a little bit because there's something really fascinating here in, in John chapter 18. You notice that Jesus said, I am, three times from verses 5 through 8. The first time he said it was in response to these guys when, when they were looking for Jesus of Nazareth, John 18, verse 5. Second time, the group fell to the ground, verse 6. Third time when Jesus said, I am, was when he told this group of people with weapons to let his people go. And so thinking about kind of this repetition of I am, thinking about these sorts of things, I mean, who else said I am when questioned by oppressors? Who else told this oppressive Egyptian regime, let my people go? And so we look at Exodus and we see God there. And we, I, did Mark write to trace back to Exodus? And I, I think so. I think he's pointing back to that, that God desires to let his people free, to, to free his people from bondage, from enslavement, from oppression. And here's one of those places where we get a glimpse of God, Jesus, Trinity, where Jesus, like God in the book of Exodus, said, I am and let them go. I am God and, and I'm all about setting people free. Free from what keeps them in bondage and enslaved and oppressed. The disciples sure didn't get what Jesus was talking about at all because they're there ready to fight. They're not there understanding what Jesus has been saying over and over again about what was going to happen to him and that they were going to scatter. They're not getting this. And instead, they're wanting to meet violence with violence. You look at Luke chapter 22, verse 49. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Jesus never told them to take up arms. He, he did tell them to remain and watch and to watch and pray. That's what he did tell them. But yet they weren't really good at that. But here we see them ready to kill, to murder. And we, we can see that the disciples aren't really in a, a good place here. No one here is really in a good place except for Jesus himself. And, and here's this group of armed people are about to arrest Jesus, but, but why? The reason is because he professed to be the Son of Man, and you look back to Daniel chapter 7 uh, for what that means, and their charge against Jesus was blasphemy. But the thing is, blasphemy is really blasphemy only if it's not true. But that's the charge against Jesus is blasphemy. Now, Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 61 
But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. Was it? What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Being so close to Jesus does not mean that we're sinless. That Judas still fell. Judas fell because Jesus didn't do what Judas wanted him to do. There, there are a lot of people like Judas. How, how many of us want Jesus to do what we want rather than trusting him to be God? See, Judas wanted Jesus to overthrow this Roman government. So did the zealot that was in the zealots. And different people wanted different things. Most of them wanted this political regime change. They wanted the Roman government overthrown. They wanted to be put back in place so that their temple worship can be as they want. They don't have to do it as the Romans want. And so how many of us are, are this prideful to think that, that we know what is best for oneself, for others, and for the entire world? And that's one of the dangers of pride. We have these feelings and desires just like Jesus did. And the key difference is Jesus yields his will to God's will. Right? He said, yet not, my, not what I will, but what you will. And in Mark chapter 14, verse 36. And we talked about that last week. Now we looked <clears throat> at those passages last week. And, and you can listen to that message if you missed it or you want to review that. Our pride doesn't want to yield to the will of God. That I have these feelings and I have these desires and I want to act on them. But God is a liberator. Jesus is a liberator. He will set us free and that is his will is to set us free. We don't have to be in bondage to our feelings. We don't have to be in bondage to our desires and when we yield those things to God, he will show us a, a truer reality. That the feelings that you feel now, the emotions that you have now, they are very valid. And they are the reality of your life right now. And you live with them and you sit with them. And just as we looked at last week, Jesus was greatly distressed. He was greatly troubled and sorrowful, even to death. And he doesn't ignore them. He doesn't brush them under the rug. He doesn't set those feelings aside. But at the same time, he does yield them to God. And even God didn't just take away those feelings. Jesus sweated drops of blood, and he fell to the ground. And his feelings, his emotions, those were real. And he yielded them to God. We, we don't have to be enslaved to them, though. We don't have to be enslaved to our desires when we yield them to God. See, God has power over them. They don't have power over God. But they do have power over us in the absence of God. We, we act upon those things when we are enslaved to that desire. And God wants us truly free from those things. You look at verse 47. Mark 14, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. The Gospel of John gives us a little bit more details as to who drew the sword and who was struck. 
John 18, verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. That servant's name was Malchus. So here, um, I, I think Peter was going in for the kill. I, I think he was trying to lop Malchus's head off. That's what I think he's trying to do. I, I mean, it's either that or Peter is such a skilled swordsman. Your ear. Like, you know, like I, I, think, I, I think it's dark and he took the thing out and he's, wow. And the dude just was lucky and was just like, oh. Phoom. Like, like, I think that's what happened. I don't know. I want to ask, but I think that's what happened because I, I just don't think he's like on guard. Like, I don't think he's that skilled. And so Luke records for us that Jesus touched Malchus's ear and healed him, Luke twenty two fifty one. Now think about this, because if Jesus did not do that, I think Peter would be hanging on a cross right next to Jesus. That Peter would have been arrested, and he probably would have been killed along with Jesus. So right there next to some of the criminals there, there would have been four crosses, I think, instead. And, and just like that guy, the criminal that was hanging next to Jesus, who said, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us, Luke 23, 39. When you look at Peter, Jesus did save him. He healed that guy. He saved, he saved Peter. Peter would have been killed. And not only does he save Peter, he did save us. You see, Peter did eventually understand that Jesus saved his life, not just because he healed Malchus's ear, but, but for all eternity. Because this is the same Peter who wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. This is the same Peter who cut Malchus's ear off, right? Keep, keep that in mind. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You'd think that reattaching Malchus's ear would have been enough for these guys to think twice about arresting Jesus. Like, um, he just put his ear back on. We should probably leave. Like, uh, like, isn't that crazy? And so part of me kind of thinks or wonders, like, what if Peter did lop off his head? What if, what if that did happen and Jesus is like... <laughs> oh, backwards, sorry. It would have changed everything, right? It would have changed. I, they would have like ran and like forget it. But so obviously God is sovereign, just the ear, right? So Jesus didn't come to kill. He came to heal. He came to give life. He came to set people free. Verse 48, and Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. See, Jesus 
<clears throat> didn't go with them as a victim. He, he is a, a victor. He knew what he needed to do. The, the circumstances that he was facing, they didn't rule him. He, he knew exactly what his mission was. He came as a ransom for many. He, he came to fulfill the purpose of drinking that cup of wrath. He came to he, in, take all that in. Pictured in that Passover feast that they just had, the, the breaking of his body, the breaking of bread, the drinking of that cup, the drinking of his blood. Now, speaking of that Passover feast that just happened, do we understand what Jesus came to do? And if you don't, you're not alone. Because the disciples don't understand at first. And that's why they flee. That's why they take off. See, Jesus didn't die just to make a statement or to be an example of how to live a good life or anything like that. He, he died because he had to. He had to do it. See, sin separates us from God, and the wages of sin is death. And in order for that debt of sin to be paid, it is through something of extremely great value that none of us has a lot of, only we only have one of it, life. It's that costly. But see, you and I cannot overcome death. We can pay for it with life but then you're not alive anymore. And so Jesus substitutes for that in that he overcomes death. He can resurrect. He has power over death. He resurrected, and and so we go entering into the Advent season as to see why he was born. It's because he had to die. We'll, We'll be unpacking that a little bit more as we enter next month, but... To know that his life was a propitiatory life, that he, his life was to substitute for us, to die in our place. Look at 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 9, reads, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus' life and his death were necessary. The overcoming of death in his resurrection was necessary to reconcile us to God, to to free us from that enslavement, that bondage to sin. And it wasn't going to be resolved with the sword. It wasn't something that was going to be resolved through natural means. It was going to be supernatural. It was going to be spiritual. And if it was as simple as a sword fight, this would have been done really quick. Right, Matthew 26, verse 53, Jesus said, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But Peter and the disciples, they they don't really get this until after Pentecost, until after they abandoned Jesus. Uh, Verse 50, Mark chapter 14, and they all left him and fled. So extremely sad, Zechariah's prophecy fulfilled. And Jesus knew that this was going to happen. And and even at this betrayal and abandonment, it doesn't lessen at all those, those feelings that he had of being deserted by his best friends. But yet he still has their welfare in mind. He, he knows that they're scared. He knows that 
they're really fearful of what's going to happen. And so he told this group, John chapter 18, verse 8, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. How many of us are, are this prideful to think that to think Jesus has it all under control until we actually think that he doesn't, and so then we step in? Like Jesus is in control this whole time, and yet Peter's the one that draws the sword. And so, yeah, God's in control, God's in control, and then until he's not. And then you go on and pull your sword out, or you take off and run, or you do whatever it is. And so it has me thinking, are, are we fighting the wrong fights with the wrong weapons? Are we just doing this all wrong? Are we picking up swords when we are to lift up prayers and give the gospel? We, we run into problems when we start swinging religion and we start wielding politics rather than the gospel. Jesus saves. It is not our swords. And so he, he enters into our mess. He doesn't run from it. He died for us to save us, to set us free, to let us go, to declare to enslavement and in bondage, let my people go. You don't have them anymore. And so are we understanding this? Because I think a lot of times we as followers of Jesus think Jesus is in, in control until he's not in control. And so we step into things and we fight for things. And we run from things. But what are we fighting for? What are we running from? And most of the time, it's for self-preservation, to save ourselves. What does Jesus say about losing your life and gaining it? Verse 51, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. We don't know for sure who this is, but many commentators believe this to be Mark. A lot of these commentators think that the upper room where the Last Supper was held was at a home owned by Mark's family. Mark's family was quite supportive of the early church. Luke recorded for us in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, that the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, was a place where many gathered together praying. So there's an idea that this was Mark. The thinking behind this is that this arresting mob first went to Mark's house. They don't find Jesus there because the Passover feast was done. And so that's, <clears throat> that's the last place Judas was. So he leads the crowd to the last place he was where he saw Jesus. And so after Judas left them, he, he comes back with this mob and they find that he's not there anymore. So Judas is like, I know where he is. This is what we always do. And he leads them to Gethsemane. So, so Mark, being at his house, was probably cleaning up because uh, mom was probably like, you're going to help me after your friends came here and ate all my food. Like, you're, you're not just leaving. And so he's like cleaning up and, and he's just wearing a linen cloth because you don't have your like nice clothes on when you're cleaning up. He's just wearing this linen cloth and cleaning and putting things away. And, and then they come, they see that the mob goes off and he runs after them and that's, he's just wearing linen because it's cold, right? Because Peter warms his hand warms himself by the fire at Caiaphas's courtyard. Jesus is sweating drops of blood. It's, it's cold. It's, 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 um, that's just telling of how, uh, how much in torment and trouble and distress he was because on that cold night, he's still sweating. So 
this linen cloth dude didn't just go out in a linen cloth in the Garden of Gethsemane to pray all night, right? He came from somewhere to look at all the, the chaos. So I, I love the details of the Bible. You can't make this stuff up. Like, dude in a linen cloth runs away naked because they grab Like, you can't make that up. Like, that's... And so here we have, this is Mark's kind of subtle way of saying, like, I was there. I was there. Like, I, I was an eyewitness. Um, this is not a way to end a sermon, I'm talking about a naked guy. Uh, yet that's our last verse. So I need to attempt to make it a little more deep. Right? So, um, <clears throat> so I'd like to address familiarity with this story. Again, I think there are some of us that are really quite familiar with this story, and maybe you're picking up some nuances of some more detail, but all you're doing is kind of like logging it in your head as knowledge, and yet it's not really transformative. And so what I'd like to really do is just kind of pause and, and let it absorb a little bit so that we can get a better appreciation of Jesus, of the gospel. This journey Jesus took to the cross, because this is his journey to the cross, it might seem really, really odd to some people. And I've spoken to many people um, about the gospel. I, I've heard people have a lot of discussions about the cross and why it was necessary. But, but there's only so much reasoning that can happen because it is truly a spiritual work and it does require faith. It's not just all reason, and it's not all logic, even though it is very reasonable and very logical. But this is what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so we need to keep this in mind as we're talking to people. Like, You can talk to them about the cross all you want and the gospel all you want, but if something spiritual is not happening there, this is just foolishness to them. They, they think we're ridiculous. See, Christianity is a reasonable faith. But it still requires faith. It, it is a faith that makes it possible to receive revelation from God. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. See, Jesus wasn't just simply a wise teacher. He wasn't just an example for humanity. He's not just this great philosopher. Jesus is Savior, saving us from sin, liberating us from the bondage of sin, freeing us from this belief that we are, we, are own, we are our own God, that we know better, which, looking at all of human history, we know is simply not true. We look at Judas, who took things into his own hands because he had these feelings of covetousness, of envy, of jealousy, but he didn't deal with them really well. He had this desire to be rich, but those things, his feelings, his desires, they weren't surrendered to God even though Jesus was in the same room as him. And Jesus was yielding to God and saying, not my will, but your will. And we can also look at the 11 other disciples here who, who fled. 
who had these feelings of security, even though Jesus told them, remain and watch. And they had these feelings of confidence because, hey, we're with Jesus. He calms storms. He heals people. He raises people from the dead. We've got Jesus. And so that even when he says, you're all going to fall away, they're overconfident. And they had these desires. They had a desire for power. And you can see this over and over again because over and over again they're fighting about who's the greatest. And so they wanted power. And they didn't loosen up their grip enough to be able to seek the will of God and saying, yet not my will, but your will. And they all said and they all did things out of themselves. They all felt their feelings. They all had their desires. That's not the issue. You can have your feelings. They're yours. They're true. You can have your desires. They're yours. Be honest with them. What get, what's the issue is when we don't loosen up the grip and we say, not my will, but your will. God, honestly, I have these feelings. And honestly, I have these desires. But ultimately, it's, it's, not, it's not about my will. It, it's your will. Now, what do we know about the will of God? Because this is a question that a lot of people have. They're like, I don't know the will of God. I'm, I'm, I, I pray and I don't hear anything. I'm going to tell you what the will of God is. I'll let you know what the will of God is for your life, right? Like, like some people are like, you don't know. It's my life. I know your will. I know the will of God because it's the same thing for me. I'm going to just point out three different places where Paul and Peter write what the will of God is. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 3. For this is the will of God. Pretty clear. Like, I don't know. Yeah, well, hermeneutically. This is the will of God. Your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. Isn't that like the biggest thing that people deal with? In terms of like relationships and what's happening out there. Like fornication is like cuckoo. And, you know, they have these studies they are saying, like, oh, uh, abortion rates are the lowest they've ever been, and uh, teenage pregnancy is the lowest it's ever been, and it's not because of morality. It's because of social media, right? Because teens don't have to interact anymore physically in close proximity. And if you don't do that, you don't get pregnant. If you just do everything online... There's no transmission of things except your sick mind. Like, so it's not about sexual immorality that that's all of a sudden, oh, great, everyone's doing good. But it's not that. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. That's the will of God. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. We've talked about this before, right? Holiness, what is separate, what is not common. You are not a soup pot. That we just use this for soup, and we also use this for laundry. We also use this to babysit our children, to get out of the kitchen. We just plop them there. It is not a common use. You are a pot set aside, separate for God. 
You're just dedicated for his use, dedicated for his purpose. You're not some common soup kitchen pot. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. What is the will of God for us? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That's the will of God. What is the will of God? 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. A lot of Christians do that one. But living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Christians aren't that good at doing this one. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. We are not good at this one. Honor the emperor. Some of you are just like cringing. Like, oh, you're kidding me. <laughs> Don't worry. It's just three more years. This is cool. It's all right. It's all right. See, God's word tells us what the will of God is. You don't have to make it all like cuckoo, mysterious, like, I don't know. You do know. It's right here. Jesus tells us what the will of God is. He, he told the disciples over and over again what was going to happen and, and why. What was going to happen? Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He told them that multiple times. Why? Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So here we are. We're in this room where the presence of God is, where the presence of the Holy Spirit is. God is here with us. And each one of us has our respective feelings. Each one of us has our respective desires. I was so encouraged <clears throat> last week that so many of you, about half of you, did that rock exercise with the cross here, um, where we, we wrote down what you were truly feeling and what your real desires were on that rock, and you placed them at the foot of the cross. That was so encouraging. I, I'm hopeful that we're all going to seek the will of God together individually as well as as a community. That all those desires that we have, all those feelings that we have, that we're going to open up our hands and loosen up our grip and say, yet not what I will, but what you will. For some of the things that we are dealing with, the, the feelings and those desires, some things... <clears throat> 
some of those things, actually, you already know the will of God in regards to those things. If you look at 1 Thessalonians, if you look at Peter, like you, you kind of know those things. Some things you already know. Paul wrote to us what the will of God is in that letter to the Thessalonians. Peter wrote what the will of God is in 1 Peter. So how are we all doing with our desires and our feelings, knowing that the time has already been fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. And so here's our turn. Do we need to repent? Do we need this rejuvenation of the belief in the gospel? <clears throat> Repentance is, is changing the direction you're going. Right? It's just changing the direction. I, I want to just let you know that as a church, we're here for you. That, that, that's our ministry. And there, there was so much vulnerability shared in those rocks. And what was heavy, what was shared was really, really heavy um, on a spiritual level. And I'm so glad that we used rocks because, like, physically we can, like, feel these things. And so last Tuesday... Uh, our, at our ministry staff meeting, we, we met and, and we prayed for, for you guys. And um, on Thursday morning, my wife and I, uh, we, we prayed for you guys that entire morning and we shed tears through those things because honestly, I had no idea that you are hurting that much or that many of you are hurting that much. I thought, you know, maybe it'll be a few, but the vast majority, over 95%, there are some deeper things going on in you that are really painful and hurtful, and I'm praying for you, but I don't want it just to end there in terms of just saying like, hey, we're praying for you. I want to encourage you to continue sharing those feelings and sharing those desires because for some of you, I think you're, you're not doing that. You're, maybe the only th people you've shared with are, is us, and yet you're anonymous to us because your name's not on it. And so in your small groups that you would share, that you would share those feelings, those desires, those honest ones, and so that collectively the group can be vulnerable to each other, developing that trust, and then lifting it up to God and saying, not, not our will, but your will. And some of those things, you, you kind of already know the will of God because Thessalonians and Peter, like, you already know. So it's more of a repentance issue at that end. But when it's something you, you don't know, that you're just lifting it up to the will of God, then, then do so, and do so as a, as a community, knowing that we're, we're here for you and that God is for you. God is completely for you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He is for you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you are here for us. And I pray, God, for courage, for a bravery, for a boldness for those who have not shared their 
truest feelings, their deepest desires, maybe out of fear of judgment and condemnation, yet we know that in you there is no judgment or condemnation. And so we ask God that our small groups, our church, that we become safe places for people to share those things, that we don't cast judgment on them, that we don't cast any sort of condemnation on them, but we want to just seek your will. That in those honest feelings and those honest desires that we want to lay them before you and and ask for your will to be done in their life. Thank you so much, God, for loving us, for setting us free. Setting us free from the things that are so damaging and, and may we not go the way of our flesh, but may we be led by the Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.